Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Karen Scharf, and I am a member of this congregation and also a member of the Board of Trustees. I want to extend a special welcome to any visitors joining us this morning. Since 1858, UUWASA has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of our classes or events. So be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. I have a few announcements this morning. Join Creativity Matters on Tuesday, October 10th at 7 p.m to explore spiritual growth through creative expression. This is a monthly small group for high school youth and adults. It's all about allowing creativity and imagination to guide us, not just our logic and reflective minds. No experience or, or artistic skill is required. Just bring a playful and adventurous spirit. And what does a white elephant have in common with second Friday nighters? If you said bingo, you're correct. The second Friday nighters bingo night is Friday, October 13th from 6 to 8 p.m. in the atrium. Bring a snack to share, your own beverage, and a wrapped white elephant gift to be given as a bingo prize. As we begin our worship together, let us take a moment to extend peace and blessing to one another. Please rise and greet your neighbors. Good morning. Good morning. Dear friends, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the chalice lighting, number 448, uh, in, the, in the gray hymnal. We gather this hour as people of faith with joys and sorrows, gifts and needs. We light this beacon of hope sign of our quest for truth and meaning and celebration of the life we share together. Please rise in body or spirit as you are able for our opening hymn, 
number 38, Morning Has Broken. This morning, I want to tell you a story about hard feelings. It begins with two friends, Violet and Fern, and they had been the best of friends for as long as they could remember. On that particular day, they were in Violet's room playing when Fern grabbed Violet's favorite book off the shelf and said, wow, my Nana used to read this to me when I was actually a baby. Now, Fern didn't mean to say only babies would like that book, but that's just what Violet heard. And without even thinking, Violet pointed to Fern's favorite flower headband and said that only a baby would wear it. Fern put down the book and left with a tear in her eye. Violet started to follow her out. She knew what she had said was mean, but she was just so mad that Fern called her a baby that she stopped and let her go. And when she returned to her room, there was a small blob in the corner, so small she almost didn't see him. Oh, who are you? Violet asked. Well, some people call me shame, and some people call me guilt, some people call me embarrassment, and some call me discomfort. But I like what my mom called me, Bob. <laughs> okay, that's what I'll call you. What are you doing in my room, Bob? 
hmm, why don't you tell me why I'm here? I show up when people do something they're not proud of. Well, um, uh, I certainly haven't done anything like that, Violet said sheepishly. Hmm, why don't you tell me about what I just heard you say to Fern, Bob asked. It was nothing, and I don't want to talk about it, so I guess you can go, Violet snapped. I would love to, said Bob, but I'm stuck here until you talk with me. Fine, but stay out of my way, said Violet, and she promptly put him on the bookcase to keep him out of sight and mind. But Violet couldn't keep Bob or what she said to Fern off her mind. The more time that passed, the worse she felt about Fern, and the more time that passed, the more Bob grew. And it wasn't too long before Bob was too big for the bookcase. It seemed like the more she tried to not think about Fern, the more she did, and the worse she felt. And the worse she felt, the bigger Bob got. Violet didn't want to think about Bob, and she really didn't want anyone else to see him, so she tried to hide Bob, first in her stuffed animals, then under her bed, and behind her best friend's forever poster, and Violet even tried to stash Bob under the rug. But no matter where she put him, Bob just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And before she knew it, Bob was filling up her entire room. Violet couldn't take it anymore and finally yelled, Oh, what will it take to make you go away? Why don't you tell me what happened with Fern, said Bob. Violet whispered. I got mad and said something mean to her. What was that? Bob asked, leaning closer. Violet took a deep breath and said more loudly, I got mad and I said something mean to her. I miss Fern. As Violet spoke, Bob started to shrink. Even if I was hurt, I shouldn't have hurt her back, Violet continued. Have you thought about telling that to Fern? Bob asked. What if she doesn't want to talk to me or doesn't accept my apology? Well, there's only one way to find out, Bob nudged. Violet knew what she had to do. She went to call Fern. At first, the conversation was really awkward, and it was hard for Violet to tell Fern she was sorry for being mean. But it turns out Fern wasn't saying that only a baby would like that book, and she had missed Violet, too. When Violet returned to her room, Bob was gone. And a little bit later, Violet's room was filled with the laughter of Fern and Violet being best friends forever, once again. And that is our story for today. Children in preschool through sixth grade are invited to join us downstairs for our children's chapel this morning. And I invite everyone here to bless those who are going to remain in the sanctuary and those who are heading down to RE with our children's song, The Words Are Printed in Your Order of Worship.
like to invite you now to join me in the spirit of prayer and meditation. Take a moment and get present with your body. I recommend that you put your feet on the ground and cross your legs. If you pray or meditate with your eyes closed, now is a good time to close them. Let's take a few full and deep breaths together. First breath, deep and full into your chest. And slow out. Another breath deep and full into your stomach. And slow out. Let us pray. Spirit of life, even when it hurts, you hold all things together in love. And still we feel loss and shame, looking for love even in the broken places of our lives. And so we pray for healing. We pray for wholeness, for the strength to forgive. We pray for all who suffer from want and fear and for all who offer them comfort and shelter. We pray for all who live with grief and regret and for all who bind up their wounds. We pray especially this morning for those caught up in and fleeing the fighting in Israel and Palestine. We pray for an end to poverty, for an end to all that stands in love's way. And we pray for a blessing. Blessing for all those people who offer soft hugs on hard days. Blessing for those whose hands hold another alongside hospital beds and nursing homes and at the altar and school and visitor center at the county jail. We pray blessing for all the mothers who nurse children and chase little kids. We pray blessing for all the wise ones whose wrinkles tell stories of laughs and tears and worries. May we know that even in our imperfect, fragile bodies, that we're blessed, even when they're sick and dying and forgetful, even when skin shows scars and stretch marks and liver spots. May we know that our body is blessed because it is our home, and not just for us, but for those who love us. Dear friends, call into your heart all the joys and sorrows in your life and let us meditate on them in silence together now.
Amen. Please stay seated for hymn number 18, What Wondrous Love Is This? The mission and ministry of Uyawasa is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. You can place a gift in the basket as it passes by. You can also stop by our website, uyawasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support.
changed up the reading this morning as I was getting closer to this Sunday. Instead of reading uh, Billy's poem, The Lanyard, I'll eventually read it some other time. This morning I thought I'd read the late poet uh, from Poland, Wisława Simborska's poem entitled A Word on Statistics. And she writes, out of every 100 people, those who know better, 52. Unsure of almost every step, almost all the rest. Ready to help if it doesn't take long, 49. Always good because they cannot be otherwise, four, well, maybe five. Able to admire without envy, 18. Led to error by youth, which passes, 60 plus or minus. Those not to be messed with, 40 and four. Living in constant fear of someone or something, 77. Capable of happiness, 20 some odd at most. Harmless alone, turning savage in crowds, more than half, for sure. Cruel when forced by circumstances, it's better not to know, not even approximately. Wise in hindsight, not many more than wise in foresight. Getting nothing out of life except things, 30, though I would like to be wrong doubled over in pain and without a flashlight for the dark, 83, sooner or later. Those who are just, quite a few at 35, but if it takes effort to understand, three. Worthy of empathy, 99. Mortal, 100 out of 100, a figure that has never varied. There and ends our reading.
Now, I don't know if any of you are fans, but if you've ever seen Star Trek or Star Wars or pretty much any science fiction show with a spaceship, there is a moment when the captain of the ship says, shields. You know what I'm talking about? And so what happens is a force field gets turned on. I've never understood why spaceships don't always just have their force fields on. Have you ever thought about that? Anyways, I don't know why they don't leave them on all the time, but the force field defends them from whatever, from missiles and projectiles or asteroids, I guess. It's an invisible armor that surrounds and protects from attack. And emotionally, we have something like this too. Your phone rings and you look down and you see it's your pastor or you see it's your ex and they just text you and boom, what happens? The shield goes up and you steal yourself for what might be in this message. Or maybe for you, it's your boss or your kid or your spouse or your sister or a teacher or a friend. We've all had someone that we shield ourselves against. And along those same lines, we also shield ourselves against the parts of us we don't like, the bits of our past that we wish never happened. Whether it be something from our past, something about our personality, one of our desires, we hide them behind the shield because we're embarrassed or maybe worse, because we're ashamed. So a few years back, I officiated a wedding and the bride gave a speech, you know, thanking everybody. And at one point, she wanted to tell us all about the reason why she loved her maid of honor so much. She said, the reason why I love my maid of honor so much is because she is the kind of person who can be trusted to delete your internet browsing history when you die. Now, I have been thinking about the hidden things in me, the stuff that I would rather die than have come to light. All those bits of damage that I've afflicted, the bits of damage that I've received, and the bits of shame that I work hard to not have to admit. But how all of this is really a very powerful thing, a very powerful force in my life. Now, if you haven't noticed, and I bet you have, shame is having a moment in our culture. And so as of yesterday, when I sat down to write this sermon on Amazon's bestseller list in self-esteem, self-help-induced books, it had titles like this, Perfectly Imperfect, The Gifts of Imperfection, Self-Compassion, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead. Now, all of the books I just mentioned and several others I didn't are about learning to live. Notice I didn't say learning to cope. Learning to live with shame and the shadow sides of our lives. Now, this last book I mentioned, Daring Greatly, was penned by the very popular researcher and professor of social work, Brene Brown. Now, I've been planning to read Daring Greatly for a long time, but my wife has pretty much read the entire thing to me in little bits and pieces because she loved it. 
So let me pause to admit that I, for a very, very long time, I resisted Brown's teachings on vulnerability and shame and courage because to me, they seem sort of goopy and cheesy, like way too wrapped up in pop culture and social media sound bites because I like to think I'm too cool for stuff like that. But last weekend when I wasn't here, I was with my family at a retreat for other families. Anyways, and there came to a moment when my daughter got to introduce our family. And my daughter told an entire group of people that I'm not cool because I talk about church too much. And she's right, I am not cool. And if I stop resisting my obsession with looking cool, I can see that for all this time I've been avoiding it, Brene Brown is right, and we really are obsessed with shame. And if you need proof, I'll give you two examples. If it weren't true that we are obsessed with shame, then why would most of the 25 best-selling books on Amazon, many of which are also New York Times bestsellers, be self-help books on self-esteem? Example number two, just think about all the terrible things people said in the pandemic, mocking people for not wearing masks or for getting a shot and then ending up dead. Remember that? It's this obsession with shaming that led Brown and many others to say shame has become, quote, an epidemic in our culture, end quote. Today, many of us know who we are by mocking who we're not. Don't pretend like you don't do it. You can often tell someone's group identity by paying attention to who and what they shame. Now before I move on, I'm gonna get a little nerdy and I'm gonna talk about the etymology of the word shame. Who's excited to learn about shame? Phew, three people, thank you. <laughs> so many of us, myself included, we confuse shame with guilt. Now bear in mind, in my research, what I found out is that almost every single language spoken on earth has two definitions of shame. The first definition tells of the painful feeling of shame. And the other one tells of the attitude of shame that can help us be a better person. I read one researcher who said that shame is sort of like air and that it has the power to help us live and thrive. But unacknowledged shame, that key word, unacknowledged shame, the researcher said, actually functions like an illness that has the power to kill. So another way to think about the difference between guilt is to have an awareness of something done bad. Like whenever we're guilty, we know we did something bad, right? Whereas shame, instead of saying, oh, I know I did something bad, shame says what? I am bad. And so guilt is helpful. It holds this thing we did or this thing we failed to do up against our values and our feelings. And sometimes, if we can balance those well, that can actually change the way that we behave for the better. Whereas shame, the dark side of it, can be an intensely painful feeling that stems from the belief that something in us or something about us is so flawed that we are unworthy of love or unworthy of belonging. Now, this could be brought on by something we experienced, something we did, something that was done to us 
or failed to do that makes us feel unworthy of connection. The truth, of course, is that everyone struggles with feelings of unworthiness. We all do. But shame is dangerous because it can act sort of like a stalker. It can make us hate those parts of us that we think are flawed or unworthy. But the thing about the feeling of shame is that the default is to hide it, to not talk about it. The philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said that shame is like a hemorrhage inside of our own souls. And it's a wound that left untreated can rot from the inside out. But one of the odd things about shame is that shame can be this really motivating force. I like to think of shame in my own life as like a personal trainer who just shotgunned an energy drink. It's sort of like a human golden retriever that just goes and goes and goes. And I don't think I'm alone in this. When I think of the power that shame has had on me, I think about the lengths I have gone to hide it. And in almost every instance, the desire to hide it has made me try to be perfect. Or other times it's led me to just pull away and withdraw or to feel insecure or to lash out. And often when I do these things, the victims are the people in my life I love the most. I tend to treat shame something like I treat a dead Christmas tree. Now, forgive this metaphor, but work with me here. I'm trying to give you something. Here's what I do. I tend to treat my shame like a dead Christmas tree in this way. I hang way too many ornaments and lights on it, hoping that when you look at my dead Christmas tree, you won't notice that my dead Christmas tree is obviously dead and very clearly a fire hazard. Or I try and convince myself and everyone around me that I don't even have any shame to begin with. And I also try to hide my shame by distracting people to get them to focus their attention on something about me that I think is cool. But as we learned at the top of this, there is nothing about me that is cool. In other words, trying to hide my shame ultimately at the end of the day, it never works. Shame's there at three o'clock in the morning when I can't get back to sleep. It's there at the gas station when someone looks at me or says something in passing that sparks a painful memory. What shame feeds on ultimately is three things. Shame feeds on secrecy, and silence and judgment. And let's face it, every single person in this room has secrets. Every one of us have been silent when we shouldn't be. And all of us knows the biggest critic we face in our lives is ourselves. And controlling all of these things becomes an obsession. It becomes a never-ending attempt at controlling how we present ourselves to the world. And when all we're focused on is controlling how we present ourselves to the world, what it does is it limits our ability to know who we are. Now there's this ancient story about the topic of shame in the Gospel of John. That's in the Bible for you, you use. If you've forgotten, I'm gonna tell you about the story. 
It's about a woman who waits until the hottest part of the day to draw water from the city well. Any former Catholics here remember this story? Yeah, three people. This is good. So I'm going to summarize it for you. So the woman waits until the hottest part of the day to draw water from the city well. It's like that knucklehead who waits in July to run at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Similar dynamic. No one did this. She doesn't go in the cool of the morning because she knows what? The other women from the town are going to be there in the cool of the day drawing their water from the well. Now the story doesn't tell us why she avoids these women, why she waits until the hot of the day. All we know, all the story tells us is that she's had five husbands and something about that fact has filled her with shame and it makes her hide. Now, why did she have five husbands? Maybe all five of the husbands got sick and they died, and so the people around town say that she's cursed. Or maybe what happened is as soon as one of the husbands found out that she couldn't bear children, they sold her. We don't know, and it probably doesn't matter. What we need to focus on is that this woman, like us, is obsessed with shame and hiding it. But one day, the story tells us, she's drawing water in the heat of the day, and a poor Jew without a high school education from a hillbilly town named Jesus, he shows up and he says, let's have a conversation. And slowly over the course of the conversation, it turns into medicine for her soul. He tells her what all of us know is true, that we would be wise to stop trying to satisfy all that thirsts us with things that never really satisfy. Just think about all the things people use to try to medicate their shame or their sorrow or their brokenness with. What do people do? They turn to sex or mindless scrolling or gossip or porn or booze or drugs or relationships or bogus religion or bogus atheism. Yet another college degree, endless shopping, endless therapy, working out, trying to eat a perfect diet, trying to get your parents to love you more, trying to be a perfect parent because your parents sucked. There are a zillion ways we try and hide our shame, so much that our damage sort of ends up becoming the motivator. And if you didn't notice what happened in the story of the woman at the well, the story of the woman at the well that led to healing, I will tell you plainly, she was vulnerable. She let herself be seen for who she really was. If we want to think about it in the context of a religion, we might say that she let herself fall into the arms of a loving God. Now, not everyone in these pews believes in God, and so I'm going to offer those of you another way into the moral of this story from the mindfulness practice drawn from Buddhism called loving-kindness which gives us a powerful antidote to shame. So there's this wonderful saying of the Buddhas that, go, that goes like this, quote, you could search the whole world over and not find a single person more deserving of loving kindness and compassion than yourself. The root of loving kindness is the same as the one as the story of the woman at the well. It's the remarkable truth that, that at the core of a healthy life, is first acceptance, especially self-acceptance. And the same thing is true about having 
a healthy spiritual life. On this topic, the Catholic theologian James Allison says that faith isn't about pinning everything to a certain set of beliefs. He says that what faith is about is it's about relaxing. It's about relaxing into the love of God in the same way we relax in the presence of people who love us. And since I'm talking about UUs, let's remember that God isn't God's name. God is our name, or one of our names, for that which is greater and yet present in all. The spark in us that gives us the courage to bear up under pain. The grace to take our successes lightly, to offer forgiveness for self and others. The energy to do what's ours to do. The patience to finish hard things. The willingness to find joy in even the smallest projects. The wonder of having found yourself at this moment between birth and death. And perhaps most of all, the meaning we find in love when we give ourselves to someone else. Which brings us back to the topic of what it's like to be in the presence of someone who loves you. How many of you have ever been loved by someone? You don't have to raise your hand. It's a wonderful feeling, isn't it? What's it like? You're unguarded. You're funny. You don't mind being seen naked, maybe. You're witty. You're spontaneous, you're softer, you're less defended, you're yourself. That is the gift of shared love. And recent laboratory studies on shame, yes, you can turn yourself into a laboratory study on shame. But what it shows is that the surest way to defend against the internal ravages of shame is what? It's love. Love that appreciates someone for who and what they are and is respectful of one's feelings and differences and quirks. A love that is vulnerable and honest, whether it's in response to your shame or to someone else's. A love that apologizes. A love that offers mercy. One of the strange things about being human is that the breakdown of our ego is the very thing that often leads us to pathways that get in touch with God, that get us in touch with our friends and children and back in touch with ourselves. And that's what happened at the well. That's what happens in loving kindness. That's what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous when someone says to themselves in a room full of caring strangers, I have a problem and I can't fix it on my own. It's for this reason that Taylor Swift sings this. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. And she inspires millions of people around the world to sing those words with her. Now, as cheesy as it might be, we cannot show mercy to others unless we know mercy ourselves. Shamed people shame people. But mercy-filled people are merciful to others. And just as shame thrives in secret, mercy brings our worst into the light and it meets it with compassion. Mercy begets mercy. And mercy might be the one thing that gets us closer to living without those shields. And it might be the one thing that heals us from this epidemic of shame. 
And now, let us join our voices in song for our closing hymn in the Teal Book, number 1064, Blue Boat Home. Please rise. If you receive a blessing, I 
ask you to reach out and take the hand of someone nearby. If you're here alone, reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free, the hope that never dies, and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude.